Today on Lawfare No Bull. On February 23rd, the U.S. District Court for the D.C. Circuit heard oral arguments in a case concerning the Justice Department's efforts to access Representative Scott Perry's phone. This is part of the department's investigation into efforts by former President Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election. The government is trying to access the phone amid congressional probes that claim Perry was an important ally to Trump in the weeks leading up to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The arguments abruptly ended as the court switched into sealed arguments. Um, my name is John Rowley, along with co-counsel John Irving and Stan Brand. We have the privilege to represent the appellant in this case. This case involved questions regarding the application of the speech or debate clause, Article 1, Section 6, Clause 1 of the U.S. Constitution, which, uh, as the court knows, provides that for any speech or debate in either house, members of Congress shall not be questioned in any other place. Um, as the court is aware, this case implicates important separation of powers issues, including whether a member of Congress's informal legislative fact-finding is protected from executive branch intrusion, regardless whether it is directly tethered to formal authorization from a committee or the House or other arm of Congress. Uh, the district court in this case held that fact-finding efforts do not occur within a, legit, a, excuse me, a legitimate legislative sphere if they are not specifically authorized by the House. It concluded, therefore, that unless formally authorized, a member's fact-finding does not qualify for speech or debate protection. Appellant respectfully disagrees with that conclusion and asks this court to reverse the district court's order all, or alternatively to remand this case to the lower court to reconsider its review of the records at issue in accordance with this court's instructions. We, we have a lot of cases supporting a broad construction of the speech or debate clause, but we are construing a constitutional text. And shouldn't we put some weight on the fact that what we're talking about here seems a bit far afield from speech or debate? Well, Your Honor, um the Constitution does protect speech or debate, and the case law, both at the Supreme Court and by this court, has made it clear that speech um, within the uh, legitimate legislative sphere uh, is protected. Uh, there's no reason, Your Honor, that speech, um, um, that the privilege applies to a congressman's office, but not to his cell phone, given the fact that in the 21st century, Congress people, as authorized by House regulations, routinely use their, their cell phones to communicate on legislative matters. As a matter of fact, during the period of time at issue here, the House specifically uh, encouraged members to use their, their cell phones to vote by proxy and to communicate with staff and other members regarding legislative matters. And so for that reason, Your Honor, Perhaps some time ago, it made sense to limit the uh, protections of the privilege to a congressman's workspace uh, in, in his congressional office. I would submit to the court that that is no longer the case, given the modern realities of technology. Mr. Rowley, um, I think it's important here that the, that the aspect of the speech and debate clause privilege that is at issue is the Rayburn non-disclosure privilege. We're not talking about 
testimonial privilege or any other immunity that follows from the clause. We're only talking about non-disclosure immunity under the clause. That was recognized in Rayburn. So, um, so I'm wondering what you think might be the limits of such a non-disclosure privilege specifically. So um, in other contexts where there is a non-disclosure privilege, say in the context of executive privilege, um, that privilege can be waived if material is shared with third parties. So, um, so what about for members of Congress? If a communication is made with somebody outside of Congress, why should that be covered by the non-disclosure privilege? And Your Honor, thank you for that question. Uh, I, I believe the principles uh, are, are similar regard or identical regardless of who the member happens to be communicating with, provided that the communication is conducted within the sphere of legitimate legislative activity. Members all the time conduct fact-finding, whether it be informal fact-finding or fact-finding pursuant to a committee resolution. Uh, as an example, Your Honor, um, the unfortunate tragedy in Palestine, Ohio right now, the train derailment and the ecological disaster. Right. But, but, but the thing is, even if we assume that some type of fact-finding individual fact-finding is covered. For the non-disclosure part of the privilege, why can't that be waived if the fact-finding involves a party outside of Congress? Well, Your Honor, because the simple answer to that, I believe, is because this is a constitutional protection, uh, Article, um, Article uh, 1 of the, of, the, uh, of the Constitution, Section 6, Clause, clause 1. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a dramatically different kind of constitutional right than some of the others. So the, so the non-disclosure privilege for members of Congress would be broader than that same non-disclosure privilege for the president or members of the executive branch? Because executive privilege is waived when it's shared outside of the executive branch. Well, Your Honor, I, 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 don't, I don't think it can, it can be waived. Uh, but I also believe, Your Honor, that... The, the communication privilege, the non-disclosure privilege, applies to communications that are outgoing and ingoing by a congressman. The, the linchpin, of course, is whether or not that discussion, that communication, is, is being undertaken for um, legislative purposes. It might be that that discussion is entitled to other types of speech and debate immunity, right? I mean, immunity from criminal prosecution or testimony but it may not be subject to a non-disclosure immunity. Well, Your Honor, I think, I think the case law in this circuit has made it quite clear that the, um, the non-disclosure privilege uh, does apply to circumstances that are quite familiar, uh, quite similar to the, the ones in this case. Um, and uh, other, other circuits have agreed, and um, I... I, I Understanding that law enforcement has a legitimate uh, interest to investigate potential criminality. Uh, nevertheless, notwithstanding that, the non-disclosure privilege here, um, uh, as I say, has been recognized by this court for some 16 years um, without variation. This is the first time, to my knowledge, uh, that a cell phone uh, has been involved where the government uh, has attempted to seize um, communications on a cell phone. But by analogy to a, con a congressman's office, um, I think the matters are, 
are, are nearly nearly identical. It's not the it's not the cell phone that makes this odd. It's that the communication can be to anyone in the universe. I mean, usually you think of a a privilege holder as having an entitlement that runs to communications with a defined category of person. You have an attorney-client privilege, that's for communications with your lawyer and only with your lawyer. This seems a little different, maybe odd, in that the privilege holder on your theory can has a privilege that extends to communications with anyone in the world. Well, Your Honor, unlike, um, unlike other types of privilege that are communications-based, like the attorney-client privilege, for example, um, this, uh, this uh, constitutional privilege is activities-based. And so once the activity uh, is, is legislative, uh, I would submit to the court that the uh, cases hold that that activity is, is protected it's an absolute privilege. Uh, it may be inconvenient at times to law enforcement, but it's an absolute privilege. And the analysis stops right there once the court is to determine that the um, that the uh, the communication occurs within the legislative sphere. And Your Honor, if I could, if I could just simply, uh, I want to make sure that I address any questions the court has. But if I can go back to my my analogy about Ohio for just one second. If the member in that district uh, conducted informal uh, fact-finding, investigative fact-finding to determine the cause of the, the train derailment and the ecological disaster that has occurred in Ohio, um, as long as that is done within the legislative sphere, it's, a, it's a, an issue on which legislation could be had. That uh, speech and debate applies if that member, for whatever reason, would have received a subpoena or a search warrant from the government uh, that privilege would be absolute and would, um, would under the, the, uh, the Rayburn analysis, provide uh, with, um, with a non-disclosure privilege. Uh, so the congressman would have an opportunity to review any communications on that phone for privilege before the government were to obtain access to those documents. So um, I'm interested in this. So a number of cases from the Supreme Court and our court have held that if a committee or a subcommittee or some component of Congress is investigating, um, those investigations are covered by speech and debate clause immunity. There, there are no cases specifically about individual member fact-finding. Um, and it seems to me that if individual member... So, so actions that come from a committee or a subcommittee are, are really by definition legislative acts. They're, in fact, acts of Congress or a subcomponent of Congress. And um, so, so how do we think about individual member fact-finding? How is it similar to things like speaking on the floor, casting a vote, deliberating and debating about legislation? Well, getting on the, the focus, judicial focus, determine whether or not the privilege exists, and therefore is absolute, is on whether or not the, uh, the communication occurs uh, in an area where legislation could be had. Well, the, the standard for whether legislation could be had is about whether something is within the investigative power of Congress. It's not the standard for speech and debate to me. Well, you're right. Admittedly, the, uh, the case law pertaining to uh, 
individual fact-finding by members of Congress is somewhat sparse, but it's, it is not non-existent. For example, in the recent case considered by the U.S. District Court of Georgia regarding Senator Graham, uh, the district judge there determined that um, under certain circumstances, citing the Third Circuit's decision in um, Governor of Virgin Islands versus Lee, that immunity can exist provided that the communications are legislative in nature. And the court in that case, as I'm sure Your Honor knows, parsed the communications. It's a difficult process, but nevertheless a necessary process required by the Constitution to parse the communications um, uh, that were legislative in nature or purely political. And I, I, I think that the, um, the, the same would, would hold here in this case. Your Honor, I see that I've gone into my, uh, my rebuttal time. All right, if there are no more questions, then we'll hear from Mr. Um, I, I actually, I do have one more question, yes, actually. So um, I'm also interested, so the Supreme Court has said that in determining whether something is entitled, you know, some type of legislative action is covered by the immunity, we take a categorical approach, right? Things are go by whole categories. We don't kind of parse things individually to determine whether they're legislative. And in a number of cases, like in the Brewster case, the court has effectively said that private conversations, you know, in that context involving bribery, were not covered by the privilege. Um, and if they were covered by the privilege, of course, it wouldn't matter that there was bribery involved there. It would be absolutely, you know, the, the member would have been absolutely immune for those acts. So, I mean, doesn't Brewster suggest that those kinds of private conversations that a member may have with a constituent or a company um, within their jurisdiction, you know, they might be appropriate, they may even be important to doing their job, but they are not covered by this privilege. Well, Your Honor, again, I, I hate to keep coming back to um, legislative purpose, but I think that that's what this case respectfully is all about. If those conversations in the example that you provided uh, were not legislative in nature, then, then the speech or debate clause simply does not apply. If on the other hand, presumably the bribe is going to be on a subject on which legislation could be had, it wouldn't be a very effective bribe otherwise. Well, Your Honor, I think under those circumstances, the uh, it would be hard for me to imagine how a recipient, a congressional recipient of a bribe, could plausibly uh, say that he accepted the bribe. And that that is protected because he could potentially. Well, that's uh, the whole that's the whole purpose of the clause, isn't it? Is that a member can on the floor say something, you know, that that may be subject to some type of criminal act, and then they are immune for that speech or debate. So, so if they are not immune from talking to someone back home about a potential bribe, then that whole category of conversations is not covered by the immunity, which means it's not a legislative act. Your Honor, I would submit to the court that uh, even if uh, a congressman was in his office on Capitol Hill discussing with a constituent the possibility of accepting a bribe, that would not be within a legitimate legislative sphere and therefore not protected. Because it's criminal activity? Because it is not, does not involve legislation or legislation that might be had. Well, that would then require the court to look behind what the member has been doing to what their motives were. And the cases are very clear that the judges are not permitted to look at the motives behind any particular action. We take a categorical approach, like 
either this type of conversation is covered by the privilege or it is not covered. It doesn't matter what the member's motive was. So if, if a conversation about a bribe is not covered, why would other private conversations be considered legislative acts? Well, I think this court found in, um, in the, the Rayburn case that uh, Congressman Jefferson um, was not entitled to the privilege for matters that uh, amounted to criminality and were outside the legislative sphere. And uh, I think I think the court uh, the court certainly has uh, has the right has an obligation to determine whether or not under a certain factual scenario it's plausible that uh, legislation could be had and that the reason for the communication was within the legislative sphere. In your honest example, respectfully, um, I just don't think that that would be plausible, and I think a court would smoke that out right away. Thank you. All right, thank you, Mr. Raleigh. We'll give you a couple minutes in reply. Uh, Mr. Pelletieri. Thank you, Your Honor. And may it please the court, John Pelletieri on behalf of the United States. There are several grounds for either dismissal of the appeal here or affirming the district court's order. I'd like to just give, start with a brief overview of what we think the logical progression of the issues are. First is jurisdiction. I know Your Honors have not asked for argument on that, but we believe that they should be dismissed for lack of appellate jurisdiction. Second, if the court determines that it possesses appellate jurisdiction, the next question is, does Rayburn and the non-disclosure privilege that the court recognized in Rayburn apply uh, to a personal self? If the court determines that the, it has jurisdiction and that Rayburn applies to a personal cell phone, the next question is, well, does this court independently need to conduct the Rayburn privilege review independently from the review by the district. Um, if the court determines that it uh, has appellate jurisdiction, if it applies to the personal cell phone, if this court has to do a review, the next question is, well, what is the scope of that review? Does it only apply to materials that are kept uh, in confidence? Which would be a much smaller portion of the materials at issue. Only if the court concludes that it has appellate jurisdiction, that Rayburn applies to a personal cell phone, that this court has to conduct its own review, or if it, uh, and that it, we think it, if it gets there, it should only apply to the materials that are not kept in confidence, then the court gets to, well, what is the scope of the category of legislative acts that are protected by the speech or debate? And that is the, uh, part of that issue is the uh, issue of uh, what people have called informal fact. Can we talk about the, the extent to which these materials have to be maintained confidentially? So, um, I mean, we can just go through some, some hypotheticals, right? So if a member has a communication with somebody outside of Congress, I take it the government's position is that's, then the confidentiality has been breached? Yeah, so the, the particular uh, non-disclosure privilege that this court recognized in Rayburn and it derived it from the civil context in Brown versus Williamson is grounded in the idea that members of Congress needs a certain amount of confidentiality and privacy for uh, their deliberation, for their internal communications and conversations. And that requires a non-disclosure privilege so that their communications are not chilled. Um, I think in Brown versus Williamson, the court said that it was prepared to respect the confidentiality of congressional files. 
And it specifically, um, it specifically distinguished a Third Circuit case because in that case, the, issue, the materials had gone to third parties. Congressional files recording communications that took place wholly outside the Congress. Brown and Williamson and and Minpico before it. Well, I think what Brown and Williamson meant is not that the uh, emails themselves, or excuse me, the materials themselves could not be in any way disclosed. It was Congress's specific working files and that reflected its deliberations. So it wasn't on par with, say, a communication. It didn't reflect deliberations. They were trying to get the Brown and Williamson documents that were stolen by the paralegal from the outside firm. I think the discussion in Brown and Williamson said that it reflects the internal functioning of Congress, the way a, um, for example, in gravel preparation for a committee hearing. Because it was a, an investigatory file. It was the part of the investigatory file that reflected um, kind of like I would think of a work product, you know, the way an attorney work product file. Right, so suppose a member is deliberating on how to vote. And as part of the internal, um, not chambers, office process, they do a series of calls to key stakeholders and constituents and supporters outside the government. And they record the communications. You know, John Smith says vote yes because of some reason. And Jane Doe says vote no because of some reason. And that information is in a file. You think you can get that? If it, I, I would assume that the recording itself, uh, I don't think we, I think we could get that. Yes, I think it, it's, there's no, for, let me be clear here. I think the non-disclosure privilege is not. Right, no, just non-disclosure. I just want to be clear that that doesn't mean we could use it um, as evidence in a criminal proceeding or a civil proceeding. Um, it doesn't mean that the uh, member can't claim testimonial privilege about it. It doesn't mean that a member can claim immunity about it. Just simply the non-disclosure privilege that that narrow um, privilege that the court has recognized in Brown versus Williamson and in um, in Raymond. And I would point, for example, to the Helsinki decision in the Supreme Court. In that case, the member uh, appeared, I think, ten times before a grand jury and talked about all sorts of legislative acts. Talked about introducing, um, talked about introducing bills and things of that sort. All legislative acts, and so he clearly did not stand on his right, testimonial privilege right. Then later, when he was indicted and the, it went to trial, and the government sought to use that evidence against him, it was excluded, and the Supreme Court upheld that. So here, because it functions differently in different circumstances... Well, but, but still, the speech or debate inquiry turns on what counts or doesn't count as a legislative act. I think I would, I would say that there's two inquiries. One is, what is a legislative act? Right. And then the second is, what is the spe specific protection afforded to the member of Congress for that act? And there's well, different the, components. I mean, you're just you're just fighting. You're just trying to relitigate Rayburn and Brown and Williamson if you're saying there shouldn't be a testimonial privilege as opposed to a substantive immunity or a use immunity. You know, I think it's the scope of what the non-disclosure protection entails. It, it protects confidentiality. And it, that protection is not at all in play when uh, these materials are perfectly open to the public. And they're, they're you know, missives. And they're not open to the public. He doesn't 
He doesn't hold his cell phone. A member doesn't hold a cell phone open to the public. Well, the communications are with uh, members of the public right. who um, could be subpoenaed, who a warrant can be issued to their emails. Uh, and so it's not in any way something that can only be obtained from a member. And it's, it's similar to a, any other kind of confidentiality privilege. The, a, um, an attorney-client privilege uh, is not kept in confidence, is not protected uh, when it's made open to any member of the public in that manner. That's, that's a good analogy for you. But what about just thinking Exemption 7 FOIA? The government is in the executive branch is investigating and in the course of doing that they speak to people in the world and they assemble a file recording what they have um found out and what they're looking at and how they're deliberating that's protected even though the communication is not with the defined person like your lawyer or your priest or your chief of staff. So why, why couldn't we think of this in that way? Building on the idea your friend put on the floor, which is that um, the privilege here, it run, runs with the act, not with the person to whom the member is communicating. I don't quarrel with the idea that speech or debate privilege turns on the scope of legislative acts, but I would quarrel with the idea that every protection afforded by the speech or debate uh, is connected to every single legislative act. And I think Helstowski demonstrates that. And I would say that these, the, uh, the, the, con uh, the Supreme Court has been clear and that when we're talking in the context of the speech or debate, obviously the text itself talks about speech or debate in either house. The Supreme Court's made clear that, I, that it's gone beyond the text, but it is only done so when necessary to effectuate the purposes of, uh, of the clause and when, it's, when the conduct is integral to uh, legislative activity, the processes. So I would, I would say that insofar as this notion of a, a, a non-disclosure privilege um, doesn't serve the very purposes uh, it, it, applying it to public acts doesn't serve the purposes it's intended to serve. It should not be extended any further. So let's separate out those two pieces. You look wh whether there's a legislative act and whether non-disclosure privilege applies. So just let's talk about the first issue. Um, a member, there's a there's a bill on the floor. A member who is not on the relevant subcommittee um, is just trying to educate himself or herself, makes calls to experts outside the government and says, what do you think? Is, is you know, what, what's your recommendation? Lawfare No Bull is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and Goat Rodeo. You can support Lawfare's suite of podcasts by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lawfare. That's www.patreon.com slash lawfare. You should rate and review Lawfare No Bull wherever you found us. 
and you should share us on all the social medias. And as always, thanks for listening.